And so I think that when I've talked with Christians, I've said, you know, I've used the language of are you a heart type or a soul type or a mind type or a strength type? And I do that to say, are you someone who predominantly experiences God in Christian fellowship? Or maybe for you, you predominantly experience God when you're in times of prayer and, and worship, or for other people, it's, it's, it's growing in their knowledge of God and their understanding of Scripture. And, and, then, and then for others, it's kind of strength types are people who I find their faith is invigorated when they're able to tangibly serve and help other people. And for me, I don't think that these are all equal in everyone's life. I think we all have kind of a different constellation of strengths and weaknesses in these areas in terms of how we experience God. Um, if you go to the next slide, Greg, this is what I would look like if you were to put it in kind of pictorial form. So um, I'm, I, I showed this to Greg, and Greg's like, are you sure your mind's that big? And I'm like, no, I don't. That's, it's, not, it's not a reflection necessarily of competency. It's just a reflection of to the extent to which you experience God. And I tend to really experience God as I grow in my understanding of Scripture and Christian worldview. And then next to that is heart. Um, but the areas where I struggle with are, are kind of soul and strength. Th- those, those are areas that are weak for me. And so as a Christian, what I have come to believe is that what it means to be a disciple is to commit yourself to growing in all four of those areas. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He didn't say, or strength. Whichever one comes easiest for you. I think as a disciple, if I want to call myself a disciple, someone who's learning from Jesus how to live, then I need to challenge myself not just in the areas that come naturally for me, digging into scripture, but challenge myself to grow in areas that, especially when I'm busy and things are happening, I would just let fall to the wayside, soul and strength. And so every month I kind of set aside four specific goals that I kind of through prayer and reflection think, I think this would be a good place to to challenge myself to grow. And I invite you guys to do that too. So this month, this is what I'm doing uh, to kind of prepare myself. Heart, I'm really planning some March break fun for my family. I want to be ahead of the curve on that. March break is kind of our first vacation week of the year. I tend not to vacation very well. I think about my job and work all the time, and even when I'm on vacation, I do. And so I really want to be more intentional this year of moving into March break and trying to set things up so that I can be fully present with my family, with my kids, and and just have a lot of fun and really have that be a rich time for us. Soul. Uh, I don't know if you, Blair mentioned the Summit newsletter that goes out. I don't know if you saw, but I put a link in there, I put a picture in there that was made by John Tyson out of uh, Trinity Grace Church in New York City. And it's a little pictorial diagram of how to pray for an hour. And he has an hour of prayer broken up into five-minute segments so that you can, moving through these segments, before you know it, you've prayed through a, a number of biblical themes and biblical priorities in an hour. And so I've said, hey, for that, I really like that picture. I thought it was a very challenging, but also very simple, straightforward thing to do. So I said, I'm going to try and do that this month. So I'm going to take one, uh, once a week, in addition to my regular prayer times, I'm going to try and pray for an hour using that um, picture. And I I can send that to you if you're like, oh, I didn't get the newsletter. Um, Just let me know and I can send that out to you. Mind, uh, I just came back from Chicago, Blair and I did, for a covenant conference, but we had to take a class on covenant history, and that's homework, had pre-homework work during it, post-homework. Blair and I have an exam we got to write before next Saturday, so I got to hit the books, and I got to make sure I'm, I'm doing that, and uh, so that's the priority for, for this week. And strength. This is an area that I'm not great at. I often, 
forget to exercise and live up my faith in really practical ways in terms of helping people who are hurting and, and broken. What's helped me tremendously is being part of our small, a small group, meets at my house on Wednesday nights, and we try and challenge ourselves once a month, doesn't always work out, but we try and challenge ourselves once a month to um, serve in some way. And so someone had the idea, uh, Kathy had the idea of putting together some kind of a love basket. It's just a collection of encouragement, little gifts for someone who's uh, really struggling within our community. And we thought that's a great idea. So we've prioritized that. And uh, I'm really thankful for that because when I see the group coming together and us talking about it and then we're all going our different places and, and going to pool all the things that we got on, on Wednesday and write a card for this person, um, that's just something I don't know if I would do if it was just left up to me. And so it's a, it's a really good teaching moment for me to realize this is why it's so important for me to be a part of a small group and to be around other Christians who have a different love language with God than, than I do because they really push me to grow in ways that, again, I would probably be neglectful of. And so this is what I'm doing. This could look totally, totally different than uh, what your heart, soul, mind, strength plan might look like, but I really encourage you to intentionally take time at the start of every month and say, in each of these areas, relationships, prayer, worship, uh, learning about God from, from Scripture and serving, what's one thing that I could do to really challenge myself? It's been a huge part and catalyst for my growth, and I think it can be for yours as well. Um, so let me pray, and then I'm going to invite Judith up for the Scripture reading this morning. God, I pray that you would put a fire in our hearts to be disciples, not just people who carry the name Christian, but it doesn't mean anything, or who carry that title casually. May we be a people that are continuing to press into what you have for us and, and really striving in your grace to, to love you heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then as we experience that love and are transformed by that love, that we would take that into our relationships with the neighbors that you've placed well, it is a small miracle today that I advertised in the Summit newsletter that I'd be talking about tithing today, and more than 15 people showed up. So kudos to you guys. <laughs> the people who didn't get the newsletter, and they just walked in, they're like, oh, this might not have been the best Sunday to come to. It's going to be okay. Don't worry. I'm going to talk about five things that I have learned from tithing. Now, I want to introduce that word to you if it's unfamiliar. It's kind of a churchy word. It's a very ancient practice, but it can in certain church circles get uh, used a lot, so I just, but I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. So when I talk about tithing, I'm talking about the practice of giving away 10% of your income, usually done to a church or a religious institution. The tithe comes from an old English word that means a tenth. It means tenthing, to tenth one's income back to the church. But this isn't really simply a Christian practice, although maybe in today's cultural landscape that's the only place that it tends to be used. We read about in Genesis 14 that long before Israel existed, long before the law gets set up and, and, and God even institutes the tithe for Israel, um, Abraham pays a tithe of his spoils to a priest named Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. And if you look at a lot of ancient cultures, there was this practice of giving back to the core religious institution uh, 10% of one's crops, wealth, cattle. That tithing was commanded by God in the Old Testament as part of the law given to the Israelites. 
you'll find the tithe mentioned not in a huge amount of places, but in a few strategic places. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, chapter 14, Numbers chapter 18. And in those chapters, you're going to find out the tithe gets instituted. All the Israelites are supposed to tithe to the temple to ensure that the Levites, who are the priestly class, what we would consider pastors or ministers today, were cared for economically because the Levites couldn't own land, which in that context basically meant you couldn't own your own business. You had no way to sustain yourself or your family. And so Israel was to all chip in so that the Levites could devote themselves to full-time temple service because they, um, so they could be freed up from not having to uh, work the land. But in Deuteronomy chapter 26, there's something really, really neat about the tithe that often isn't explained in churches. Deuteronomy 26.12 says, God commanded every third year, so you tithe regularly, but every third year, the tithe was to be, stri- to be redistributed, not just to the Levite, to the priestly class, but to any alien in the land, so any refugee or uh, migrant that was now part of your land, uh, anyone who was fatherless, and, and widows, so in widows and orphans in Israel. Every third year, the tithe was to be redistributed so that those people, people who were economically very, very vulnerable, could be sustained. And, would, and there would always be enough in Israel. The idea behind the tithe is that everybody always had enough, especially the most vulnerable. So it was first and foremost for the temple priests, but secondarily to ensure that the most easily exploitable people in Israel wouldn't be exploited economically and that they would be cared for and have at least basic needs met. Now, probably the most famous verse that pastors love to talk about when it comes to the tithe is Malachi 3, verses 8 to 10. This is super, super famous. If you've been part of a church for a long time, you've probably heard it before or heard it referred to. If you haven't been part of a church or you're new to this whole Christianity thing, I'm going to read this for you and you're going to say, oh, I could see how pastors would like that. So here we go. Malachi is a minor prophet. This is God speaking through the prophet Malachi. He's speaking to his nation, Israel, and he's calling them out on something. He says, God says to the nation, Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? And then Israel's like, "Uh, How do we rob you? And God says, In tithes and offerings, you're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. So through the prophet Malachi, God is saying to his people, by withholding that 10%, you're not, it's not just like you're doing something wrong. You're actually actively robbing me. It's as if you're taking, clawing back what is supposed to be for me. And what God is saying to the nation of Israel, he says, I want to remind you about something. None of what you have is yours. All of your wealth comes from me. I've given it to you as a nation. And I've entrusted you to use that in ways that glorify me and that bring good and flourishing into the world, that speak to my blessing that speak to my goodness to other people, that speak to my glory to people who don't know me. So if you don't tithe, you're failing to acknowledge that I am the Lord over all these things. That's what God's saying to Israel. 
Not just to 10%. It's not like God's saying, can you give me that 10%? Because that's my part of it. God's like, oh, it's all mine. I could demand all of it if I wanted to. I'm just wanting to make sure that 10% goes back explicitly into my purposes so that my kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And God, he lays a heavy, lays down a heavy. He says, you're under a curse as a nation because you're not tithing. For whatever reason, you're kind of saying, this isn't necessary, or I don't want to do this, or I'm not willing to do this. And God says, you're now under a curse. And a curse is, blessing and curses shows up in the Bible a lot, especially in the Old Testament. A curse is something that God places on a people to make life just harder for them. Do you, um, you ever have those dreams where you're trying to run away from someone in a dream, but you're like in super slow motion? And it's like you can't move properly? That's like being under a curse. There's a certain way that life should go, and no matter how hard you try, it just doesn't seem to be effective. And a blessing is that which is a catalyst to movement and to momentum. When, you have a, when you're under the blessing of God, things that should be this difficult tend to maybe just be this difficult. There's, there's just, life is smoother. It works better. There just seems to be a synergy amongst the parts. And it's like, oh, things are going really, really well. God says, you're not tithing as my people, as my nation. You're under a curse. The entire community, everybody is. So, again, you might be able to begin connecting the dots why pastors love this verse. Because preachers and pastors can leverage this verse in Malachi 3, verses 8 to 10, to really press people, sometimes guilt people. I won't go that far. I'll say press people, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But they press people to say, you should, look, look what God says. It's right here in the Bible. You should be giving 10% of your income to the church. And then maybe subtly inferring, if you don't, things aren't going to go well for you. Curse, awkward, ooh, so it's in your hands, but ooh, curse. <laughs> um, but I wa- what I want to at least introduce this morning is the challenge of, and ask the question, is that actually true though? Is that a right way of using Malachi uh, chapter 8? Well, let me put it this way. Is a tithe, it's clearly commanded in the Old Testament, is a tithe commanded in the New Testament? Is a tithe commanded for New Testament Christians? And the answer that I want to give is yes and no. Uh, actually, I think the better way to answer it would be say no, but yes. And this is what I mean by that. Here, here, here's, here's why I want to say no. You might be surprised to learn this. You can look it up. But nowhere in the New Testament at all is a tithe ever demanded or commanded, ever. The word hardly ever shows up in the New Testament. Jesus talks about it a few times in Luke 11, Matthew 23. But when he's talking about it, he's using it to get leverage on religious leaders who are so precise in their tithing and in their letter of the law obedience. But they're, they're, in doing that, they're neglecting the weightier matters of the law, which is doing justice and showing mercy. He says to them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You're hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices. You tithe your crops, your mint, your dill, dill, your cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, righteousness. Oh, you care about the tithe, but you don't give a rip 
about the stuff that God actually says, this is weightier. This means more to me. And then Jesus says, you should have practiced the latter, meaning tithing, without neglecting the former. And in the rest of the New Testament, tithing is never commanded for believers in Jesus. And, and um, this is something that critics of the tithe, people, people who say the tithe isn't, it's not for Christians at all. Tithe was done away with when Jesus died on the cross. They'll point to that. They'll say, there's lots of what we call pastoral epistles, which is a fancy word for letters, letters written to churches like 1 Corinthians, where if Paul or Peter or some other New Testament writer wanted to say, hey, you should tithe. Remember the tithe? You should do that. There would have been tons of opportunity to do that. The, the, the reading that Judith read this morning from Paul saying, hey, there's a famine over here. They need money. This would have been an easy time for Paul to say, hey, remember Malachi 3? Remember that? So this is where that kicks in. He doesn't, though. And so people who are against the tithe being for Christians, they'll say things like, well, one person that I read said, Paul, Peter, John could have easily mentioned the tithe when discussing any matters of giving. But they knew that the tithe as such had been nullified by the cross of Christ and was no longer valid. So they said, case closed. We're not commanded to tithe. So that's a burden that New Testament Christians are no longer underneath. And if I said, here endeth the lesson, you guys would say, this is the best tithing sermon I've ever heard in my whole life. (laughs) Praise the Lord. (laughs) Well, that's only the one half, right? That's the no. I do not believe a tithe in that sense is commanded or demanded. It's certainly not in the New Testament. But this is why I would say the answer isn't as simple as no, and I think it actually leans in the direction of no, but yes. Because the principle behind tithing has not been nullified by Jesus' death on a cross. When I read or hear people who are like, oh, I'm not an Old Testament Christian, I'm liberated from the law, I live under grace now, so therefore the tithe isn't binding to me, I can just live in love for Jesus and and move forward. I appreciate the heart sentiment there. What I want to correct people with is saying, depending on how, okay, let let me say yes, you're no longer under the law, but you're not supposing Jesus died for your sins so that you could hoard more money for yourself, do you? Your joy as a Christian isn't coming from the fact that now you don't need to give any money to God or way less than his people in the Old Testament were obligated to do. Jesus didn't die so that we could become more materialistic. He didn't die so that we could hoard more wealth to ourselves and the projects that we think will make us happy. While the critics are correct in stating the New Testament doesn't command tithing, I think the New Testament commands and points us in a very, in an even more challenging direction because it supplants a legalistic understanding of tithing with a bigger principle that we see lived out in the gospel, which is radical, self-sacrificial generosity. Self-sacrificial, radical generosity towards the kingdom of God and the people of God for the good of the world. That is an unmistakable theme that shows up in the Gospels and carries all the way through in the New Testament. There's a lot of scriptures that you could work through. You might 
choose to do that in, in some of your small groups this week. But for now, can I point you to one in Mark chapter 12? This is a really interesting case study where we get a lot, get a real insight into what Jesus is hoping his people become as disciples. You might know this story. It says, Jesus sat down opposite the place, this is in a synagogue, where the offerings were, uh, sorry, in a temple, were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. First of all, can we just get a picture of how awkward that would be? That would be like me when the plate's being passed, walking with the plate and being like, watching you. Jesus sits down in full view. He wants to see them bringing the temple tax and the, and the offerings. And he's just watching. He's observing what people are giving. And it says, many rich people threw in large amounts. Wow, that's great. Have, bigger giver, have big givers in your church? It's not a, never a problem. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. That's a New Testament way of saying basically worthless. It's not really going to help anything as it relates to temple repairs or, or a priestly sustenance. She gave in, from a worldly perspective, nothing. But he, Jesus calls the disciples to him. And he says, do, do you see that? Do, do, you just, do, you, do you see what I see? He said, I tell you the truth, that poor widow put more into the treasury than anybody else. And they're like, what? That is objectively not true. But Jesus said, no, spiritually, that, that is actually what happened. They, see, the rich people, they gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And this is really interesting, because Jesus doesn't say, look at her, she was very poor, but she tithed. He said, she was very poor, but she gave everything she had to live on. And notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, that's kind of reckless and foolish. She should have been more responsible. She only needs a tithe. Don't worry about it. Maybe he could have said, she's in poverty, she's in dire straits. She doesn't need the tithe at all. He doesn't need to worry about giving anything. Just let it, It's fine. It's, this is only for people with the means to do it. Jesus celebrates someone who, not, not based on what they give, the, but the proportionality of the gift, which reflected this poor widow's love and trust in God. And Jesus says, that is what I want to do. That's what I want a disciple to be like. That's how I want a disciple to think. Not, okay, what's the minimum I could give? What's a tithe? Get out of it. Sweet. That's great. Now I get to just do whatever I want with the rest of my money. No, no, no. Remember the broader principle. You're, you give to me, God says, to be reminded that Everything that you have comes from me, and it can be gone like that. I give you wealth, I give you power, and you have to steward that well. Jesus uses this woman's reckless, worshipful giving as this teachable moment to his disciples. He doesn't say, this is so crazy, this is so irresponsible, what is she doing? He says, God sees that level of self-sacrifice. He sees that level of love. And the inference is great is going to be her reward, both now and in heaven. See, God said when a new covenant comes, he's going to replace our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And that means, I think, that if Christ is at work in your life, if his spirit is stirring up things in you, you over time become more eager to give. You want to grow in generosity. You, you want to extend your wealth to the advancement of God and his kingdom. 
for the good of the world. If you're born again by the Spirit of God, you don't suddenly start thinking about how you can keep more of what's yours. So while I agree that tithing is not commanded or demanded in the New Testament, I think the pattern Jesus points us to and the apostles lay down is very, very clear. Radical generosity. Likely in a way that makes the tithe obsolete because it goes over and above the tithe. So what does that look like? I think radical generosity looks very different for different people. Again, I I don't like formulas, but whenever this comes up, what does it mean to live a generous life? I like to start with the principle of the tithe and go from there. Because I think whatever we can agree on, what is a generous, what does a posture of financial generosity look like? I like the idea of starting with a tithe. I'm not going to get hung up if someone wants to argue me down to 8% or that's, that's not the point. The point though is a section of our income should be going back to glorify God, to worship God, and to become giving Jesus room to begin operating or putting a new operation in our hearts, which sees generosity as something that we dearly, dearly want. I tithe 10% of my gross income. I don't say that to brag. That was a long and, and challenging journey. But I do that because Proverbs 3 and not, 3, 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. So before taxes, before anyone else gets their hands on, on, on the money that God's entrusted to me, I give back 10% to the church, to the church that I'm a part of. And then over and above that, I give to things like World Vision or other ministry opportunities. And I want, you, I want to share with you very quickly five things that I've learned since making the commitment to do that. Number one, I, tithing taught me what idols actually grip my heart. Before I started to tithe, I, was in a, I didn't have a lot of clarity over the idols, the things that compete for God in my life, what were, which idols were really, really had the stronghold in my heart. When I put myself in a situation where I first started giving 2.5% of my income, then I, I kind of did progressive tithing, then 5% a few months later, and then a, another half a year later went to 7.5%, and eventually to 10 I began to realize, oh, financial security is a massive idol for me. Right? Money isn't... Sometimes we all, in a sense, want money, but we all want money for different reasons because money symbolizes different things to us. And for me, it symbolized, probably just because I grew up ostensibly with a single mom who didn't have a lot of money, having money and having money in my bank account symbolized security for me. I could have peace if I had an extra $500,000, $2,000 in the bank account. But that money was no longer there that idol of, oh, no matter what you do, Jeff, make sure you, you have this, that, that came to the forefront. I don't know what God will teach you in terms of what you're using money for and what you're looking to money to bring you, um, but I believe that tithing helps to unearth that. Jesus said you can't serve both God and money because they, they, put a, they exert a pull on your life because money represents something. And we often look to money to bring into our lives what we should be looking for, uh, to God to bring into our lives for. Number two, I learned that tithing relocates your glory. And that's a strange way of saying something, and what I mean is this. We all glory in certain things. We all give weight to certain things and say, this is what really matters. This is what's really important. And when you tithe, what happens is what you think really matters begins to shift. Jesus said it this way. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. You don't misunderstand that verse. He doesn't say where your heart is, that's where your treasure goes. That's true too. He said it differently. He said, where your treasure is, your heart will be. It will follow where you're investing. We know that. 
When you, start in, when you become a stakeholder in an organization or a person or a situation because you're giving time, energy, and money to it, you start caring about that thing a lot more. And I began to realize tithing was so helpful for me in beginning to say, instead of a little bit like, oh yeah, God, this kingdom, for sure, Jesus, absolutely. That took on a new depth and new weight when I began to become a stakeholder in the kingdom of God beyond just words, beyond easy worship, beyond just showing up on something, showing up on Sunday and wanting to get something out of it for myself. When I, became, when I began to self-sacrificially give, I began to love God and love his kingdom and see things about what God was doing that I just didn't before. Number three, I learned to actually manage my money. I used to think, I'll tithe, I'll do all this stuff when I like, get my finances in order. And for me, I, I didn't even come close to getting my finances in order until I started the tithe. The tithe was the catalyst that God used. It was the spark that forced me to say, okay, what is, how do I actually be a steward of my finances? How do I actually use this stuff wisely to God's glory? And in, in, and in the process, I learned that uh, when I actually began looking at my money, to be honest, I, I didn't feel the tithe tremendously at the start because in learning to budget, I realized I waste a lot of money. <laughs> About 10%, I just waste on dumb things. So now I'm just going to get more intentional in giving that explicitly to God as an act of worship. And I noticed it wasn't in my bank account and stuff, but in a lot of ways it was kind of like, oh, that's just money that I would have spent on dumb stuff that two or three weeks later I was like, I don't even really miss it. Number four, I learned what sacrificial worship means. Do you guys ever sing that song? We bring a sacrifice of praise. Yeah? Yeah? Nod your head, please. Yes. <laughs> Never heard it. Oh, that's great. I used to sing songs like that. Oh, I bring a sacrifice of praise. But it never meant anything to me. Or it didn't mean the depth that it did because I was never actually bringing a sacrifice. I was just showing up at the church. Again, thinking, well, what's, what's the minister going to give me? Or what's the word for me today? Or how do I need to be recharged? Tithing taught me the meaning of biblical sacrifice. There's a really awesome line that comes out of First Chronicles 21. King David is offered oxen for burnt offerings, uh, some wood for the altar, and wheat for a grain offering. It, it comes from this guy, uh, this man named Aruna, and he says, and David says, I want to set up a sacrifice, and Aruna says, I'll give you everything. I'm going to give you the oxen, I'm going to give you the wood, I'll give you the grain, you can do all the offerings that God requires. And, and, and he says, I'll give it to you for free. And David says, no, I'll buy that stuff from you. And Aruna says, no, 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 you can have it for free. I want to honor the king. Th this is for you. You, you use my stuff and free of charge. And David looks at him and he says, no, I'll pay the full price. I will not bring a sacrifice that costs me nothing. David said, I can't call it a sacrifice if it hasn't cost me anything. And David said, I will never bring a sacrifice that costs me nothing. And I love that line. Because tithing taught me that when you bring a sacrifice of praise to God, not just on Sundays, but through your week, sometimes it is, it's, it's legitimately costing, costly. And it isn't always exciting. It doesn't always feel good to bring a sacrifice. Because by definition, you're bringing something which if you kept it would make your life better. You're giving it up to God. 
but it's made my worship more intense. It's made my prayer life more intense because I now have a new understanding and a new window into the gospel. That's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians from the reading. What, you know, Paul could have said, you should give more. You're Christians. You should know better. He doesn't. He says, here's how you're going to learn to give more. I want you to think about Jesus who had the ultimate riches. He gave all of those up and stepped into poverty for your sake so that you could become rich in him. Not materialistically rich until the new heavens and new earth. Then we will be materialistically very wealthy, but now spiritually wealthy. Paul says, that's the motivation of your giving. You sacrifice because no matter how much you sacrifice, Jesus has done more. He's one-upped you. Because Jesus didn't tithe his blood. He didn't tithe his life. He gave everything so that you, in your poverty and in your destitution, might become rich. Last, number five. I learned from tithing that Malachi and Matthew are actually right. That the principle behind those things still stands. Malachi 3.10, God says, bring me the whole tithe into the storehouse and test me in this. Test me. Only time in scripture where God says you're allowed to test me. You can test me in this. And I'm going to pour out so many blessings on your life, you're not going to be able to contain them. He's speaking to the whole people, not just to individuals. It's not a prosperity gospel thing. But I have experienced the unbelievable, out of left field blessings, sometimes financial and material, but oftentimes not. But just other things that I just honestly feel like God honored the fact that I was trying to honor him with my wealth as best as I knew how. And I learned that what Jesus says in Matthew 6.33 can actually be trusted. What are we going to wear? How are we going to afford this? How are we going to pay for these clothes? How, you know, what am I supposed to do with my life? Oh, I've got all these anxieties. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all those other things will be given to you as well. If you make God and his kingdom your priority, if you give him the first fruits of your time, energy, money, all the other things that are legitimate needs, God will take care of. And I've learned that that is actually genuinely true. That's a true and genuine, uh, that's, a pr- that's a promise we can count on. So here's where I'd invite you to consider taking action this morning. I love the definition of discipleship offered by Dallas Willard. He says, discipleship is doing the next right thing. Wherever God is putting in front of you, discipleship is doing the next right thing. Don't worry about 10 steps ahead or 100 steps ahead. What's the next step that you need to take? Here's a few things I would invite you into. Commit to some kind of giving structure in prayer. Commit it to the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, uh, yeah, these Macedonians, they welled up in generosity. They were, they were impoverished, but they gave way more than they should have. But he, gave, he said the secret. He said, but f- see, first they gave themselves to the Lord. They didn't just give money. They gave themselves to the Lord. And out of that, a, a, a radical kind of generosity emerged. So think about committing to giving in a new way in prayer. Start giving. Just do it. It's never going to be an easier, not awkward time. You just got to start doing it. And then if you want to know kind of how on um, some more practical measures, I've written a blog post a few years ago called Tithing, a step-by-step guide for beginners. So if you Google that, my name, or you can go to my uh, blog at miradisciple.com, that'll kind of tell you my journey and, and kind of charts out in kind of X, Y, and Z form how to actually begin tithing if you're at a place where you're like, I'm hardly giving anything. I'm not giving anything at all, but I'd like to begin moving towards tithing, but I'm scared. I'm anxious. I, I don't know if I can get quite to 10% yet. I was the same, and I've found that God honors even progressive obedience in this area, and so I kind of outline there steps that you can take. But let me leave you with these, 
this word that I think still stands. The Lord Almighty says to his people, test me in this. Test me. Go ahead. Bring it. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Let's pray. God, I really believe the tithe as a mechanical, as a, as a cold, hard, black and white, religious demand is no longer binding for us. And you, but you invite us into something bigger and something more robust and something more demanding and that is lives that are completely in your hands. Martin Luther said there's two conversions. There's the conversion of the heart first and later comes the conversion of the wallet. God, would we be a people that you would convert our hearts and wallets so that um, what we spend our money on, not just in terms of giving back to you, but in all things that you would continue to challenge us to grow in ways that increasingly show your goodness and glory to the world. We love you. Do a work in us this morning.